The scripture reading today is from Acts chapter 17, beginning in the 31st verse. Paul is in Mars Hill. Beginning in verse 31, Acts chapter 17. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they had heard the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, and others even said, We shall hear again concerning this matter. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined and believed, among him who were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, as well as others with them. Good morning. I invite you to be taking out your Bibles and be turning to the book of Acts in the 17th chapter. If you, have, if you don't have them open there already, we will be studying from that context of Scripture in just a moment in Acts chapter 17. Certainly are thankful for the beautiful day that we have to be together. We're thankful for each and every one that has come out to join us to worship our God. We're thankful for God's providential care in watching over us and allowing us this privilege and opportunity to come and worship Him this Lord's Day. This uh, afternoon, when we come back for our evening service, you're going to be able to sit at the feet of Brother Jeff Asher, who is here. I know he's here just to see Jeremy and Mary Beth, right? Uh, <laughs> he's saying yes on that, but he is here. Uh, and to see, I think, the new addition to the family. We're thankful that they have made their way back uh, this uh, to be with us this week and thankful for their safe travels, and we're thankful for uh, the new addition to their family as well. In Acts chapter 17, we will be looking at this context of Scripture in a moment, but what I would appeal to you is to look at verse 34, the very last verse of this chapter. And you might see that there are a few who are converted to Christ. And there are two that are named Damaris and Dionysius. And there is something that is unique about Luke in his writings. He is usually very good and very intentional about pairing male and females together in different and unique ways. If you go back to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 2, you'll read about Simeon and Anna, that they are both there in the temple in that area, in that complex, and that they are recognizing Jesus in his infancy. And Luke pairs them together in a unique way. In Acts chapter 2, at the beginning of the book of Acts, in the prophecy that Peter quotes from the prophet Joel, he says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. A particular emphasis there that I want you to see is the sons and daughters being included in this prophecy. You'll read about in Acts chapter 5, a man and his wife named Ananias and Sapphira. In Acts chapter 9, you'll see a healing story where Peter heals Aeneas and Tabitha in raising her from the dead. You'll also read about Aquila and Priscilla 
in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 18, where we are first introduced to them. Luke is very good about putting all of these people together in some unique ways. And there in Acts chapter 17, at the end of that chapter, we have Dionysius and Damaris who are paired together. And I would think that's something that we will look at that is sometimes neglected and overlooked. And we're going to try to correct that this morning as we study along. But the book of Acts, it's filled with examples of conversions that you could probably name many of them. You have the 3,000 that were converted on the day of Pentecost. You have the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. You have the Ethiopian eunuch as well in Acts the 8th chapter. In Acts chapter 9, you have Saul of Tarsus. You have Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 in his household. That You have these conversion stories that we are very familiar with. In Acts chapter 16, we get a few of them. We get Lydia and her household. We get the Philippian jailer. And in Acts chapter 17, Paul is on his missionary journey, his second journey. He goes to the city of Thessalonica. He's not very well received there, and yet some still believed. He goes to Berea, and those are more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. And then, because of some of the trouble that goes on, Paul and his party, they have to separate for a time in that second journey. Because of the people of, from Thessalonica, the jealous Jews that are taking uh, an approach to Paul that they are wanting to see him dead. And so Paul, he has to separate from his party and they, he spends a few days, it seems, in the city of Athens. And we typically don't think of this place as a missionary success for the Apostle Paul, do we? Because... We don't read of very many people who are converted. We have two people that are named, Damaris and Dionysius. We don't know much about them either. Paul didn't write a letter to the church of the Athenians. He didn't spend a long time there. And to our knowledge, we don't know that he ever went back to the city of Athens. Nevertheless, in the short period of time that Paul was there, he did influence hearts and minds, and souls were brought to Christ that were convicted of the truth of the gospel. And we see there in Acts chapter 17 and verse 34, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. We don't know much about Dionysius or Damaris, but they are named here. If you go see the new Indiana Jones movie, you might get excited because they have a scene in the cave of Dionysius. I went and saw it on Friday. I was really excited. I was like, oh, that's, that's got to have some kind of connection to my sermon. No, not at all. But it was still pretty cool. Dionysius, he is an Areopagite, we find out. And you might be thinking, who or what is an Areopagite? Well, just notice in Acts chapter 17 that Paul, he has been uh, standing before the Areopagus. 
in Acts chapter 17, if you go back to the beginning of this section in verse 17, when he is reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, he is also going into the marketplace and he is preaching the gospel. And it says in verse 18, And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, What would this idle babbler wish to say others? He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. And he is brought before the Areopagus. You still may be thinking, okay, then they take him to a location. And I think sometimes we think about a location there. And yet, I don't think that's what the context bears out in verse 19. It says, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. A location can't make a determination about what Paul's message is about. In verse 22, it says, So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. I would have you see there in verse 22 that as he is in the midst of the Areopagus, who does he address? Men of Athens. The Areopagus is most likely this like, city council, if you will. Uh, they are this council of people that are the guardians of what is being taught in the city of Athens. The philosophers, they have brought Paul to the Areopagus for an examination of his public teachings. They are the guardians of the Athenians and the Greek traditions that are taking place. And notice at the end of this section in verse 33, so Paul went out of their midst. So he has come in before the Areopagus and then he leaves their midst. The pronouns, it indicates that this is a group of people that he is speaking to. And Dionysius is the Areopagite. He is a member of that council. He is someone who is influential. He is someone who is perhaps wealthy from the aristocratic class in Athens. But that's about as far as you could take any kind of speculation about who he is. Other than the fact that he becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. Damaris, we know even less about her. And so in these brief comments of what Luke says in verse 34, that some people joined him. And then he names very explicitly Damaris and Dionysius. I think this, at least within me, it creates an interest, an intrigue in who these people are and what was it that Paul said that day that would have made them want to forsake all the Greek traditions, all the idolatry that is there in the city of Athens? What is it that Paul said that would have caused them to give all of that up and to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? If that doesn't intrigue you, then 
I don't know what would. It certainly intrigues me. And that's what I hope that we can see and investigate together as we study our Bibles this morning. And the first thing that I think that we can observe in this text is in Acts chapter 17 that Damaris and Dionysius, they were confronted with the folly and the foolishness of paganism. Going back to verse 16 of the same chapter, in Acts chapter 17 and verse 16, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, that is, those his traveling companions, Timothy and Silas, He's waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. He sees the city that is full of idolatry and he begins to be provoked within him. And so he cannot remain silent in a time when he is on the run for his life. Because of preaching the gospel, it has caused him, and he can't find a time where he can, or a place where he can be silent. He must preach the gospel. And so he goes into the Jewish synagogue there in Athens, and he preaches and he teaches with the Gentiles. He goes into the marketplace, and his preaching was very radical for the city of Athens and the Greeks. Because he is preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. And they bring him before the Areopagus, and they want some answers. They want to know what is this that he is preaching. And the Athenians, they were used to this. They were used to engaging in discussion and debate and philosophical ideas that would have been exchanged. They were not opposed to that at all. It says in verse 21, Luke offers a little bit of side commentary. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. This was a very normal kind of practice in the city of Athens. But yet what Paul was preaching and teaching, it was striking a nerve. Because it was so different, it was so radical. And so, what is it that he begins to attack and he deals with? You continue in verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious or superstitious in all respects. And he recognizes that these are people who are very diligent in their observance of their idols. that They are very committed in their idolatry. And Paul, he comments in verse 23, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And you have to imagine that Paul, as he is before this city council, this group of people, the guardians of the traditions of Greek philosophy and religion, that here he is and he's saying that what you are doing is done in ignorance 
I think sometimes some people have this idea that what Paul does in Acts 17 is that he really softens his message to these Greek philosophers and these idolaters. I think the very opposite. That he is being very direct and he's saying the very problem, the very foundation of your, uh, of your paganism and your idolatry is your ignorance of the God of heaven. That this is an attack against the very foundation of everything that they believe. That what you and by their own admission is what they do not know. There were altars to gods that were called unknown in the city of Athens. It's very well attested. That they had this appearance of religiosity and spirituality, and yet they did not know God, the true God. Something that they admitted themselves. That certainly while they were honoring the gods, they, they were also admitting that they did not know all of them, in their opinion. Which would have made their religion worthless and vain. And idolatry is foolish, and that is something that Dionysius and Damaris were having to hear, and they were having to confront, and they were having to recognize the folly and the foolishness of all that they had been growing up with. Isn't that a hard thing for many people? Especially whenever they have grown up going to the same church, believing the same things as their family, that's what holds many people back from being obedient to the gospel, even today. It's their connections to how they grew up. Yet Dionysius and Damaris were honest in their examination of what Paul said. I can't help but think of the book of Isaiah in Isaiah 44. When Isaiah the prophet, he attacks the very basis of idolatry in reducing it to an absurdity. In Isaiah chapter 44, in Isaiah 44 and in verse 9, Isaiah says, those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. What has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. 
Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn so that he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am worn, I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. You see what Isaiah is doing? He's talking about the craftsman that would be creating an idol out of whatever material it might be. It might be made out of iron. It might be made out of wood. That it is all in the imagination of the inventor, the creator, isn't it? And that the, the woodworker, that as he is measuring it and he's cutting it and he is forming all the outlines of whatever it is that he might be creating... He will use some of the wood that he works with to create a fire that he cooks with. And then out of the same very piece of wood, he's going to craft this idol and he's going to bow down to it. And he says, you are the God who created and that you are the God who delivers. What nonsense! Isaiah is trying to show and he says in verse 18, they do not know, nor do they understand. For he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. And all of this is reducing it to ignorance. What motivates and what pushes idolatry is ignorance of the true God. created heaven and the earth. And idolatry is not just blind ignorance, it's willful ignorance. They do not know, nor do they understand, for He has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend, Isaiah says. Damaris and Dionysius, they had to recognize. And as they are hearing Paul's message in Acts 17, that he attacks the very foundation of paganism and idolatry and their re religious practices. They had to deal with that. They had to hear that. But then they had to come to know the Lord of heaven and earth. As Paul continues his message in Acts 17, in verse 24, as he says, I'm proclaiming this God to you. And what's interesting that in verse 23, that this inscription to the unknown God, actually what it seems that Paul has done, that throughout the town of Athens, the city of Athens, there were several idols to gods that were unknown. And Paul kind of adapts that and he says, I'm going to tell you about the God that you do not know. Singular. 
The God who created the heavens and the earth. The God, as he says in verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made with hands. Central to the gospel of Jesus Christ is the fact that there is one God who created this world and all the things in it. And what Paul says in verse 25 is that nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. If you think about that Isaiah passage, what Isaiah shows is that idolatry, it's all rooted in the invention of man. Idolatry is the religion that we might want. Of whatever kind. Whatever we think is acceptable. That is what idolatry is. And we can make our religious practice whatever we want. And that's idolatry. But that's not what this is. Is what the God who created the world. And all the things in it. He is the one who gives animation and life and breath to all people. God is not animated by man. He is the one who animates and gives life to us. God created mankind to live on the earth. He says in verse 26, And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determine their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. That they should seek God. If perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. And God created mankind with the ability and the desire to seek after God, to come to know Him. And we see that we can come to recognize God by the evidence of His creation. Paul makes this very point in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1 and in verse 20, when Paul writes, For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became God is seen in the evidence of creation. You look around and we just come to know that there's this intrinsic of knowledge and ability that we have to recognize that this did not just come from nothing. No matter how hard people may try to deny the existence of God, that is a fundamental fact that they know that nothing does not produce something. 
Even the Greeks understood that point. That there must have been some greater cause. Something outside of ourselves. That's why Paul even is able to quote from their own poets in Acts 17 and verse 28. For in Him we live and move and exist as some, even some of your own poets have said, for we also are His children. The fact is that what they were even able to say, we are the products of this. That we did not come first. (laughs) You look around and it's just a truth. That there is a creator, that there, there is beginning. And so Paul, he concludes in Acts chapter 17 and verse 29, Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. An idolatry does not answer where all this came from. This seems to be a pretty common way in which Paul would talk and preach before Gentiles. If you go back to Acts chapter 14, Paul says some very similar kinds of statements when he is among the Lyconian people. The people of Lystra. And he says in Acts chapter 14 and verse 15, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And God allowed you to go worship however you wanted to. And yet He did not leave Himself without witness in that He did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. The very fact that rain came and that food was given throughout the seasons. God in His creation, He can be seen and He can be found and there is evidence for Him. But ultimately, God is found through His gospel and through His word, through the revelation of Himself, not just in creation, but in through what He has said. Going back to the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, In Deuteronomy chapter 4, as Moses, he says to the children of Israel in verses 7 and 8, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Moses, he's speaking about this principle that God is near us because we have His law, we have His judgments, we have His wisdom, we have His understanding. 
And that through His law and His righteousness, we can come to know Him. Towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and in verse 11, Moses says this about the law that God has given them. He says, For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. And obedience and compliance to the law was not something that was impossible for them to do. He says, It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make, it, make us hear it that we may observe it? He says, You don't have to go up to heaven to get it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? It doesn't take being a Christopher Columbus to go across the sea to find God's will. He says in verse 14, But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. And it's being revealed to you right now, and that's exactly what the Apostle Paul picks up on in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 10, that's the exact passage there in Deuteronomy that Paul quotes from. In Romans, the 10th chapter. In Romans chapter 10 and in verse 6, as he's talking about the gospel as the way in which God is going to save us from our sins and justify us from our iniquities. He says, but the righteousness in Romans chapter 10 and verse 6, the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to say to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That is the gospel. That God is found in knowing Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that is how we come to know God. But it is all rooted in the fact that God is the creator and the originator of life. That He is Lord of heaven and earth. That He is the one who can save us. He is the one who has the power to raise Jesus from the dead. And the fact that God is the creator and the originator of life itself is foundational to the Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ. When people start saying and suggesting that Genesis chapter 1 is just a bunch of myth, it's just a bunch of fable, that God created the heavens and the earth in six literal days, when they start messing with that, they're messing with the gospel and the heart of it. Because if God is not creator, then the gospel is not true. If God is not creator, then Christ is not the Savior. And if God is not creator, then man does not need God. Everything unravels. And what Paul is trying to do there in Athens is get them to recognize that God is the Creator. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And that this is fundamental to everything. That was something that Damaris and Dionysius had to 
be confronted with. And they had to begin to recognize. And they also believed that they would be judged. In Acts 17 and in verse 30, as Paul has attacked the very heart and the very core of idolatry and has tried to show them that there is a God who created the heavens and earth. As he had mentioned in Acts 14, God allowed you to go your own way. He says the same thing essentially in verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. That now as we have come to recognize the authority and the power of God, that He is able to judge us. He is the one who is able to command us to repent. And if there is a God who created everything and everyone... And that same God has established order to the universe and the natural realm, even placing within man the ability to come to find God. And it is reasonable to believe that God is going to hold everyone accountable. What we know is that God holds those who sin. He holds them accountable for suppressing the truth that God's wrath is revealed against those who practice ungodliness and unrighteousness, Paul would say in Romans chapter 1. That those who commit sin, that they are worthy of death. No one can deny their guilt There's none righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone is guilty. No one can deny the guilt and the fact that they deserve punishment. But what Paul does in Acts chapter 17 is offer hope in the face of judgment. Because there is one who will judge us. In Acts 17, verse 31, Because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The central issue that becomes important is the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus means that the universal enemy, the enemy that we all face, namely death, has been destroyed. And everyone must repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the heart of what Paul's message is. As Peter would say in Acts chapter 10 in his sermon to Cornelius and his household. In Acts 10 and verse 42, he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. 
Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That through faith in Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness. The one who judges is the one who offers salvation. And through his resurrection, there is hope. This would have been strange to the ears of the people of Athens who degraded the body. They, in their philosophies, they diminished the significance of the body. Certainly would have mocked the notion of God raising the dead and raising bodies. And that I think should impress us so much even the more about Damaris and Dionysius and that they were willing to believe this message. And when they believed they received the forgiveness of sins, they were converted to Christ and they became disciples. And here, we're not told all the things that they did. Belief entails obedience. It involves obedience. As just a few verses earlier, they were told that everyone everywhere must repent. You repent because you believe in God that there is a God who is going to judge. And so they needed to repent and to abandon their idolatry. Faith involves confession of Christ. We see that very clearly in the example of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 37, when the eunuch says, Look, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And they were immersed in water just as the eunuch was that day when Philip and the eunuch both went down into the water to be immersed and to be free, have their sins washed away. In Acts chapter 17... Faith, belief, it represents the entirety of what Damaris and Dionysius did. And while some did not believe in the resurrection, it says in Acts 17, verse 32, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Some mocked this idea. Others Again, we're willing to hear. And some were willing to join. And so we have the conversion of Dionysius, the Oropagite, and Damaris, who became faithful followers of Jesus. While we don't know much about them, we know that they became disciples of the Lord. And we know that they rejected the foolishness of idolatry. They believed in the God who created the heavens and the earth. 
They began to prepare themselves for the final judgment, believing in the hope of the resurrected Jesus. And they believed and obeyed the gospel of Christ. We know what they did. Are you willing to do the same? Are you willing to become a Christian and a disciple of the Lord Jesus? This morning, if you have never become a child of God, we want to encourage you to become a Christian. To forsake your idols, to forsake all the things that are in this world that are distracting you from serving God. Come to believe in the God who raised His Son from the dead to give you hope that the power of Satan and death are ultimately destroyed. And that there is salvation through believing in the name of Jesus Christ so that you can be prepared to meet your God. If we can help you in some way this morning, would you let it be known as we stand and as we sing?